0: everybody it's brennan i want to tell you about a special event coming up on october 30th flame tree press presents flame tree live and spooky on october 30th climb aboard the bone-chilling fun-filled rides of flame tree press's first annual creepy carnival featuring readings panel discussions live Q and A, special
1: swag giveaways and more patrick here panels will be featuring authors such as katherine cavendish v castro hunter shea Jonathan Jans, Tim Wagner, and more.
0: The event takes place on Friday, October 30th, 2020. It's going to happen at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 8 p.m. British Time. You can expect it to last about five hours. And you can RSVP today at flametr.com slash live spooky. Hope to see you there.
1: Welcome to Deadhead Space. You can find us on Apple Podcasts. Notice it said Apple Podcasts, not iTunes. I have fucked that up for the last 40-something episodes. Michael David Wilson has let me know that. So, for now on, do not search Apple iTunes. Go to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or any other major platform, which now includes Ghana, India's largest streaming service. I'm your host, Patrick R. McDonough, joined always by my co-host, Brennan LaFaro. Say hi, Brennan hello and today we're joined by founder of this is horror and author of the girl in the video and an upcoming collaboration with bob pastorella they're watching hello michael david wilson
2: hello good to be here good to connect with you on the podcast
1: good to connect with you and uh real happy to have you we've had a few podcasters on here but this is Horror to me and brennan is uh pretty much the idyllic horror podcast so we're we're happy to have you on and then bob pastorella will be on record we're going to be recording him in a a couple weeks but uh as far as the listeners are concerned that will be the next day the episode comes out so uh let's jump into it what got you into horror so i mean i think
2: Possibly one of the things that first got me into horror was when I was younger, my grandmother would read me these ghost stories. I think I can't have been more than five years old, so possibly you could question the ethics of that. But nonetheless, when I went over to stay with her, she would tell me different ghost stories. There'd be a combination of fiction and then supposedly non-fiction and like real life happenings in places like York in the UK, which is a very historic town with a lot of ghostly tales. I mean, so much so that they have a ghost tour that you can go on. So you tell me about these places where the Roman soldiers had used to march through the towns, but then there was this pub and how it had been built the pavement is now higher so you'd only see half of their body (laughs) like marching through the basement of the pub she'd also tell me um about the kind of classic ghostly spirits and uh, specters that will be seen in various buildings there were also tales of paintings where the eyes moved and they followed you around the room so all of these things I guess gave me an appetite for horror and for the weird and the macabre so if I try and pinpoint what started it I think it was that but I've always been fascinated by horror and by the dark and of course when I went to amusement parks and things it would always be the ghost train that I would gravitate towards and I was simultaneously quite scared and also excited by it and that was just something I couldn't get away
1: from and that is that's where it started Patrick. Ghosts are pretty terrifying. I think that's really neat that that's it seems like that's really the subgenre that you were focused on. Um, Your grandmother, was she into, you know, reading any of the horror classics from, you know, Dracula or Frankenstein or any of the older weird fiction authors from, say, the early uh, 1920s or 30s? So,
2: I mean, I wouldn't I wouldn't at the moment classify my grandmother as like a particularly huge horror fan so I mean if I think about people like Stephen King and Clive Barker who a lot of us gravitated towards that wasn't the kind of fiction that she was interested in but I do know that she really liked the woman in black and the Mm. stage play as well so I think the more gothic fiction and perhaps even things by the likes of Shirley Jackson would be the kind of things that she would enjoy but I mean typically both my grandparents and my mother were wide readers they were interested in literature and in classics and things like Jane Eyre and Pride and Prejudice and Shakespeare I watched a lot of Shakespeare adaptations at my grandparents house and i suppose whilst my grandmother i could pinpoint for getting me interested in in reading and to some extent horror it was my grandfather who was very instrumental and supportive when it came to my writing because i wrote this kind of resident evil rip off this zombie (laughs) novel when i was like 12 or 13 and i don't know how many words it was but we were talking over a hundred pages now there's a possibility that i made the font bigger and was like well here's a little trick we can (laughs) we can do it this way but i i gave him this this novel, as, as I called it, to, to critique. And he he properly gave me line edits on it. He read it multiple times. And looking back, I mean, it it was probably dreadful. This was like a 12, 13-year-old writing a Resident Evil ripoff. But for <laughs> him to encourage me like that, I mean, it, it kind of set things rolling. And then I went to, like, different writers retreats for young people and yeah I mean I've been writing most of my life really telling stories I remember when I was nine years old and in primary school I year had to read like a story that we'd written to like the, the lowest year to reception who were four and five years old and so I I did that as well. It was a a illustrated Jack and the Beanstalk ripoff. It was called something like Jack or possibly James and the chocolate tree. And as I spoke about on, on Ladies of the Fright, there's quite quite a a twist ending on that one, if you want me to, to talk
0: about that
1: story I wrote
2: at
0: nine. So I, I, you know what, I will let the readers, you know, if that gets released someday, might experience be, that for be. themselves.
1: <laughs> you it's never a, know. You never future know. Future Del Rey book. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> but but I got I gotta say I'm a little bit in awe of what a terrific answer we got out of what pretty much amounts to Patrick asking what got your grandparents into horror. I think that's the first time we've asked that question of a guest before. I don't know that I expected much, but um, we somehow got writing journey out of that. Fantastic, wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. So stretching from nine years old, what kind of led you into thinking this was something you wanted to do as a career, or at least as a portion of a career?
2: Hmm. It's an interesting question, and perhaps a difficult one in some sense. I mean, I think I've always wanted to have. A career that involved writing so I mean when I was thinking about so what do I want to do when I, I guess when you're 15 you're like okay so school is going to end in a, a few years I might actually want to think about what it is I want to do so initially I thought well I'd like to be a journalist because that is a career that involves writing. So I guess that's the one that I should go for. But unfortunately, I mean, I had some people, some family members, some teachers who were like, well, if you're a journalist, there's not so much money involved in that. So you might want to find something that pays the big bucks. And so... I, I mean, I was effectively told, whether implicitly or explicitly, that if I was gen- a journalist, I was not going to be able to afford to live. That was the message <laughs> that I was getting. And I thought, well, I'd quite like to live. And so I I started to consider other options. And I thought, well, I, I guess maybe an accountant or a solicitor, these seem to pay a lot of money if money is what we're after then maybe you'd look into that but luckily another thing that seemed to be important was go to university that was very much drummed into me and so I, I did I initially started doing a philosophy course and so I've always been into writing, but there's little, there's been little stretches of my life where it's like, maybe I'll deviate a little bit away from writing, almost like test it out, see if, see if I can live without writing. But then early into the philosophy course, it was like, this is, this is really interesting, but I wish I was doing a creative writing degree. And so then I met with the professors at Warwick University, which is where I was doing philosophy about potentially transferring to English literature and creative writing. And a successful meeting later, they were like, yes, you can. And so initially, I was going to go from first year of philosophy to second year of English and creative writing. But then that deal had kind of been done behind the back of the actual director of the program. And it's a very prestigious program. And because the deal had been done, he couldn't, he couldn't rescind it, but I did have a meeting with him saying, you know, like he, he kind of felt that it might be good if I started from year one, because there's a lot in this course. It's very prestigious. It's not great to jump to year to year two and I said that I'd be more than happy to do that and to prove to him that this is something I'm serious about. He also somehow managed to throw into the deal that he wanted me to also try really hard with the remainder of the year on philosophy and so he wanted me to get at least a 2-1 which is the second highest classification you can get and I was like... (laughs) Well, okay. I like a challenge. Let's do it. We'll get a two one in the first year of philosophy and then I'll, I'll move to year one of English and creative writing. And so that is what I did. And then after graduating, so I graduated at a time similar probably to, to both of you where we'd been told that we could be rock stars we could be astronauts we could be anything we wanted we just had to to work hard and then the job would be presented to us yeah and then the fucking economy crashed so it's <laughs> yeah. like I'm, I'm sorry bad news so that that plan that we had we, you, you can't do that anymore there's no money so um about you working really hard yeah well, well done you, but sorry. <laughs> so then I went into just just an office admin job because at that point it's like, oh, I've graduated. I need money. There are no jobs. So I just wound up working for a housing association, doing some admin, doing some Excel spreadsheets, sending out some letters to people saying like you're you're behind on your rent we need some money so that that was a, a, at least you a, were a writing. satisfying job it's like going going after, yeah at least I was writing something <laughs> but yeah like going after people who can't pay their rent what what a lovely and fulfilling job that, that i i jumped into so pretty soon into that i was thinking well you know, I didn't work really hard at school and university to just, like, get this standard admin job that I could have got just straight out of high school without any A-levels. So then I thought I might as well have a little look at what will pay money, what will actually, you know, allow me... To, 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 to do well for myself and to take advantage of the fact that I have this degree. And then I found out, well, you could do a graduate diploma in law, which is effectively a one year course to, to, to get on the way to becoming a lawyer. And I thought, yeah, well, that pays a lot of money. So I will do that. And so then I did do that. And then about halfway through, I was like, Fucking hate law <laughs> why am i doing this <laughs> and it was it was a a very expensive lesson and it's almost simultaneously one of the best and one of the worst things that i've done it was the worst in the sense that oh that's a lot of money that you're now in debt for which i mean i've now paid off but it took about 10 years to pay off the bloody thing <laughs> and then it was one of the the best things because i realized okay pursuing the money doesn't work that's not what you can do so you have to pursue the passion and you have to pursue what you actually like and it was at that point that i was like right i'm committed to writing and publishing and to just doing what i always wanted to do and actually now that i'm older and i've done the maths and i know how much it costs to live you can fucking earn a living as a journalist you can earn a living writing it's just that I guess the the upper middle class role models that I had you know perhaps just just waited too much on on money and maybe expected to live you had to have some of these finer things in life and it's like I I don't get my happiness through money and materialism I can live with with fairly little and honestly these days as long as I've got some food that I like and some coffee and and yes an internet connection then I'll be I'll be pretty content there's a lot that that I can do with that and so after law, I immediately started freelancing for different heavy metal and horror magazines because the two the two passions and the things that I'd always been into were horror and heavy metal. And I got an internship for the extreme metal magazine Terrorizer. I ended up working for them for a little bit. The internship then some Freelancing, I got to do some cool things like meet up with Vinnie Paul of Pantera and interview him. I got to interview Orange Goblin, um, loads of interesting things. And then simultaneously, I, I started freelancing for the UK horror magazine Scream, which I think have been around for a number of years now. But I started freelancing for them from something like Issue 2 or Issue 3. Oh, wow. So this is very early on into that. And what I started doing was I was interviewing horror writers. And so people like David Moody and Adam Neville. And actually, that's how I really got into the UK and American and indeed America and globally. The horror scene through doing this for Scream, because at Warwick and doing creative writing, I guess I'd, I'd, I'd paid less attention to horror at that time, mostly because there were some professors that were trying to steer me away from horror, which obviously that hasn't panned out too well for you, has it? So bad luck. And. So then I kind of had a, a little look at who who were who the main names within the British horror scene, and I interviewed them in person. But then realised there was much more appetite for that than than there were pages that scream were prepared to to fill with with my interviews because it was a horror magazine predominantly for movies. It wasn't Michael David Wilson's. Like interviewing horror writers magazine, that would have been a different thing. But there was the demand for that. So I started up the website Read Horror, which quickly became This Is Horror. And I mean, you know, a little bit more about the story from there. So we had the the website, the awards a few years later, the podcast, publishing and always always at the back in the background I was I was writing and that was still a concern so in fact the original question which you probably asked about half an hour ago at this stage <laughs> was about the the uh career so as well as doing all these freelancing things I started looking at how I could work with my writing so, I got a job in digital marketing, which is not it's not quite publishing or writing? But it, it felt tangential because there is some writing involved. Marketing does have that skill set, and then from there, I got an internship with Rebellion Publishing, who like owned 2000 AD with Judge Dredd and a load of graphic novels, and they also. Owned Solaris and Abandoned Books in in the UK and from the internship I then got a job with them which I kept all the way up until deciding I wanted to go to Japan which was a pretty good reason to leave a publishing job and so then as I was saying, with the writing, it was always something I was doing. And then it was in 2016, I thought, I'm going to take this seriously, because I felt that I, I'd always been working on stories in the background. But I hadn't, there wasn't a seriousness to it. There wasn't the routine, or I wasn't as prolific as as I wanted to be. And as I am now. So as somebody who is up for a challenge, I said, OK, you've got Wilson, the writer in in your Twitter handle and in all sorts of handles. So you, you've got to prove that you're Wilson, the writer or, or you can get rid of that handle or maybe you can change it to Wilson, the nonfiction writer, because admittedly <laughs> you are doing that, but it's not got as much of a ring to it. So then I started The one story per week challenge. I said, okay, if you can write one story per week for an entire year, I suppose you're a writer. So I said to myself, okay, I will do that. And then I did it and I haven't really stopped writing (laughs) since then. There's the girl in the video that came out earlier this year. There's they're watching, which is out for Halloween. House of Bad Memories is coming out in March of next year via Grindhouse Press. There's a number of other novels and novellas that I'm either working on or have ready to go. So yeah, I, I guess I didn't mess about when I said it's time to prove that you're a writer, but I, I think a lot of people do this. They, they decide that writing almost, it means too much for you that you're you're almost paralyzed because when I started out the podcast, you know, it, the stakes weren't as high. I didn't put my identity on being a podcaster, but I kind of had tied up my identity in being a writer. So to fail was to almost fail at being me and to make me have to ask some fundamental questions like, who am I? So. I put it off. I did these horror tangential things, but oddly, it may have paid off because it meant by the time that I started writing seriously, I'd built up this network of other writers and publishers, which of course made getting blurbs significantly easier because even though I, it was my debut novella, The Girl in the Video, I was hardly new to the horror scene, so I managed to get some blurbs from David Moody and Alan Baxter and Josh Mallerman, which I think is fairly good for a debut. And even Brian Keane gave an impromptu blurb on, on air of the, the sadly defunct the horror show. But I understand there's been a YouTube uh, live stream recently? Is it happening right now?
0: Might uh, be happening earlier now. today? Earlier today, our time.
2: Oh, a yeah, well, I, time. Wait, was yeah, it or
0: something, our time. Yeah, really? I need
2: to watch that. There's, there's gonna be a replay, but I'm I'm glad that even though the horror show as a podcast does not exist, that it will still exist in some form. And I mean, Br- Brian said that he's going to continue doing the interviews, but in a video cast. Format, but anyway, Brian, this isn't about
1: you. <laughs> it's about me today. So wait us get back Brian to knows it. who we are. You what? Sure, why not? I said we Brian. Brian.
2: You know Brian knows who you are, and you're just <laughs> being humble. You yeah, you you just
0: <laughs> you're trying tab- to, oh, to get <laughs>
2: elevated on air. I'm I'm onto your games. I'm not like someone like. Glenn Parker, who you can manipulate to say things to
1: compliment you, those are so fucking stupid and easy to play off.
0: If I'm honest, I'm amazed at how little money he accepted to say that you weren't a real person. (laughs) (laughs) I think we're gonna have to pay him at least fifty bucks. He did it for seven.
1: Yeah, I thought I thought you were like Glenn. (laughs) I really thought when you, uh, for audio listeners, we are talking on video as well. I thought, uh, Michael, when you came on video, you were going to be Max Booth in a Hello Kitty mask. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, so I'm not maybe, sure.
2: Maybe maybe this is the mask. Maybe when I take it off, it's like, oh, surprise,
1: Max Booth. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure how to reply to that. Uh, how to reply to all that? Uh, that was like a 15 minute. Yeah, it was awesome.
0: Oh, I got that one. Uh, Michael, you covered everything we wanted to talk about. Thank you for joining us. It's been very nice.
1: <laughs> All right. Thank you, Michael, for joining us on this is uh, Deadhead Space.
0: Okay. <laughs> thank you. Connect with me,
2: at Wilson the Writer. And until next time, have a great, great day.
1: Patrick, Good did afternoon. you want to the name
0: oh, of our show there?
1: Oh, to- to- this is Horror. You Brennan. almost called it. This Is Horror, didn't you? No, Brennan, we're done. Just shut the fuck up. We're done. <laughs> yeah. Alright, go with your question, man. That's not, this joke is done. <laughs> yeah, okay.
0: So, uh, in all seriousness, um, I, I, I really liked how, you know, multiple times you touched on how your journey to the big time kind of, it just kept coming down to, or at least the different stops on the journey kept coming down to money, um, and and I think that's such a big like touchstone of our generation is is, is we're kind of brought up you know with that you can be anything attitude but um, almost kind of swept under the rug but don't be artists or musicians because you're going to be playing on a street corner Um you can be anything but you know really focus on on this direction and you know just kind of make sure that you end up in a position. That pays the bills. Make sure that uh, you can take care of yourself and your family. But you're right; you have to have passion for what you do. Um, and I and I love the way you kind of flip that on its head. You know, you you established your theme early on, and you flipped it on its head. Great storyteller stuff. You should do this for a living. Um, so, kind of picking up midway through um, your your answer to that question. When you started This Is Horror and, you know, it sounded to me, forgive me if I'm wrong, but that it originally started as an avenue for you to uh, write articles and things like that. So what made you say podcasting is the way to go next?
2: Okay, so with the podcast, it came about for a number of reasons. So one of the reasons was I was a great podcast fan, but there didn't quite seem to be a podcast doing exactly what I wanted to hear. Because I wanted to hear conversations with horror authors. And there were three podcasts that were were almost filling that but weren't quite. There was horror, etc., who are now defunct, but they were an amazing podcast that really went in depth with Horror, it was mostly movies. There was also booked podcasts who are very much still going. They've got over 500 episodes and they they were interviewing people and they were reviewing books. But they did sometimes cover cover horror, but it was a broader spectrum of horror and noir and crime and thriller and all good stuff but I wanted something that was specifically focusing on horror. And then there was the Geek's Guide to the Galaxy, and their conversations were fantastic and perhaps nearest to what I wanted to be doing, but they were more science fiction and fantasy. There was occasionally horror or horror tangential, but it was very much an SF and and fantasy thing, I mean, you can kind of tell from the name, the Geek's Guide <laughs> to the Galaxy, and from the cover art, and even from the people involved, it was SF and fantasy. Mm. So that was one of the reasons. And I should say as well, most of the times why I do something is because I want to see it in the world, and it's not happening. So when I was freelancing with heavy metal magazines and horror... Um, I arguably liked them equally, but there were enough heavy metal magazines and heavy metal websites, but there wasn't really a horror fiction website. So that's ultimately why this is horror came to be. But the other reason specifically for podcasting was I kind of had a fear of public speaking. <laughs> and so I thought, I want to defeat that fear, and I like doing these fear-setting exercises very much in the the spirit of Tim Ferriss, who talks about confronting your fears. And I thought, well, if I were to start a podcast and I were to do some public speaking and I were to become a teacher, I probably wouldn't be... <laughs> afraid of like public speaking anymore now I'm not necessarily recommending that route to people but it was what worked for me and so I hosted a horror event at the Warwick Arts Centre at this in this big conference room with Gary McMahon, David Moody, Adam Neville that was terrifying, but I managed to, to, to handle it and to do okay with that. And then I started the podcast and then I became a teacher and yeah, public speaking isn't so much of an issue for me anymore. I mean, it, it's only an issue in the, in, the, in a normal sense that if you've got a big important speech, then most people are going to feel a little bit of trepidation, but before it, it it was like a proper fear so i i confronted it and and here we are so yeah that those were the reasons for for the podcast The combination of there being a demand me wanting to see it and me confronting my fear of public speaking
1: i uh so i listened to the first episode a while ago and that was you dan and i think there was a third person wasn't there you think correctly. Yeah. I don't. I don't remember who it was though. Wow. Would you like <laughs> me to tell you? I would. Okay. <laughs> His
2: name. I'm just being deliberately fucking awkward to interview. There's no. There's no real need for. Maybe it's just like the coffee is now half gone my first coffee of the day so I'm waking up and getting into that mode I was in with ink I'm just being a fucker <laughs> but yeah so a guy called John Costello and he he's a musician probably first and foremost an electronic artist and he was also he was a lecturer at Warwick doing screenwriting, but I didn't know him through the program that I was on because this program he did was completely separate. And he did it alongside the author, Joseph DeLacy. So I got to meet Joseph first. It was actually the Warwick Arts Centre event I just told you about with Adam Neville, David Moody and Gary McMahon. John Costello came along to it. And that's how me and John got to know each other. We oh, okay. got on very well. We lived ridiculously close to each other in Coventry at the time. Like, you could walk 10 minutes to each other's house. So all of the episodes that he's on, that's in person. So it's me and oh, okay. me and John in person and then Dan via Skype. Um, but, I mean, John just didn't have the the time to commit as frequently as i wanted to put out episodes so i mean he could only seemingly turn up every month or so but i wanted to to have this to be a weekly show um or at least at that time you know every fortnight Mm -hmm. and then actually probably one of the reasons that dan left was because he couldn't keep up with a pace that i wanted Eva. so what i'm saying is the only person with the stamina that i have is good old bob pastorella and dan, dan also left because you know he he was expecting his his first child or his wife was expecting the child you know dan didn't give birth himself but he i'm not really expected sure how the child works. to turn up and nine months later it did materialize and he he, for some bizarre reason, decided to to prioritize looking after his kid rather than hosting the this is horror podcast. It's something that I, I personally couldn't relate to. But I can't
1: absolutely either. shameful, Yeah, I, I don't. Care. Yeah,
2: yeah. I think he should be ashamed, actually. And if, he, if he's listening to this, I hope. You know, sometimes I I ask about regrets or what you would do differently or maybe what advice you would give to your 18-year-old self. And I hope Dan would say with absolute utmost seriousness, I would say when you have a kid, do not abandon the podcast. (laughs) Because later, when your kid turns 18... She is going to abandon you, and what I mean by that is she's going to leave home. I'm not saying she's going to fall out with you, Dan, or never speak to you. But she's <laughs> going to leave. The podcast is forever. It's in your heart, so
0: stay with it, Dan. I do. Have- so was that? Uh, I was going to say, was that a question on on Bob's job interview? Like, you know, if we are talking to Alan Baxter and you're, you know, and your wife goes into labor, what is your priority? What do you do? <laughs> And he had to answer correctly that I call her a cab and we get Alan on the phone.
2: <laughs> <laughs> that is actually exactly what he said. I think maybe you've been eavesdropping in the the interview process, but that was a question. There was also a very rigorous stamina test, which I mean, Bob passed with flying colors. So that was pretty much the process. And then after I was like, oh, by the way, do you like horror fiction? And he's like, yeah, it's all right. Like, I don't. Okay. Yeah. I don't Seems really. like, like you
1: qualified. I don't really like Bob. He's so, you know bald, so yeah, don't trust yeah. him. Yeah. <laughs> it is.
2: It is. It is weird when people are follicly challenged. You you do have to think. Well, if you're missing your hair, what else are you missing?
0: Yeah,
2: you gotta gotta so be much. careful. So yeah. as
1: far <laughs> so as far as your podcast goes. Do you and Bob ever talk about like where you see this in the future? Do you have a? Do you see five years, or are you just taking it one year at a time?
2: Well, we we do talk about the future, and we do think about the future. And I mean, periodically we'll kind of have a meeting where we'll, we'll talk about an action plan. But I mean, very broadly speaking, it is to to get more listeners to grow the Patreon to. Basically to grow all the metrics for all the numbers to to eventually go up. And then there's also a number of guests that we would like to get on the show. But of course, as as it grows, as the audience grows, then there's more chance of getting those dream guests anyway. I mean, as you know, at the start of this month when we're recording. So September, I spoke with Chuck Paulinick. Yep. Who's a top three dream guest. So that, that was surreal. And actually, having had that happen, it really does make me feel like, you know, that there's almost no limit to who I can get on, on the show. If I work hard and if I stick at this, which obviously I'm, I am doing. This is, I mean, at, at the moment, a lifelong concern. So there's going to be a, a great deal. Of, of episodes of this as horror, but I, I've spoken a little bit off air to you about metrics and things. So I think the only thing you should ever be doing is trying to compete with yourself. And so looking at your numbers and are, are your numbers going up? But I think as well, it's important to take a very, very long term view to, to this. So if, Last month, you had way more downloads than the month before. That's too short term. You can't get upset with yourself. So typically, I'll look at it on a year-to-year basis. Mm. And for some reason, I've noticed that there are some months that historically perform less well than other months. Mm. And I don't know exactly why that is. So, for example, one of them is March. So why all the hate? Why are people not listening as much in March? I don't know what, what's going on there. Um, but August and September seem to do pretty well. Um, it, it, of course, depends on who you have on the show. If I get someone like Chuck Paulinick who has over, uh, wow, I, th- I think he has like over half a million Twitter followers, yeah, you're does. going to have your numbers jump up. So you can't be upset if the next month you're not averaging as much because you didn't have Chuck on the show. <laughs> you, so you, you've got to kind of look at things in context. But I think as well, whilst I want the numbers to grow, what's more important is putting out a quality product. Hmm. And what I'm most concerned with is becoming a better interviewer, putting out a better show. In terms of the quality of the show, getting better equipment, having better practices, but obviously things like that, there is an upper limit. I mean, if you've got the best microphone at that point or you're in a studio, then that is as good as it's going to get. But I think as well, there are diminishing returns. You know, as long as you've got sound that is decent is it worth then spending 500 pounds on the best microphone probably not when you're one that's like one or 200 is going to do the job just fine Mm. so it's looking at where to concentrate your energies. so at the moment i'm concentrating on the art of the conversation asking better questions being a better listener and this is something that I recently spoke with Bob about because it's very weird because what we're doing with this is horror is we have something that's halfway between an interview and a conversation. It's almost like a simulated conversation <laughs> because you're getting information, but you can't dominate because you're, you're the interviewer. You're, you're almost like, well, you are a, a literal host and almost a metaphorical host as well. Like feeding the questions to to give the energy to 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 the recipient and to the guest, the person that you're that you're chatting with. And I mean, we're also the objective is to make them look good, to make them shine. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of research goes into that, particularly with me and like I try and pull out little bits of information from their life sometimes things that they're like how the hell did you (laughs) did you find out about that and I'll be like well look at the cameras they're watching Uh, (laughs) and they're watching yeah yeah and so that that's kind of how I do it but also I mean but Bob and I making sure that we work well as a team and like what we don't want to do is ever interrupt the guest, but we don't want to kind of take the conversation in in the wrong direction or in a direction that the other wasn't ready to go in yet. So, I mean, a good way is to try and find a a way that even though you're on air, you can communicate with each other. So then it stops you interrupting. I mean, you both have the video on, so that is going to make it a lot easier because you you've got those those visual cues but me and bob is it's audio only um so i can't see if bob's ready to to jump in and to to uh ask something or to say something but my my the feedback we seem to be getting is that people do like how how we work as a team. It's almost like I, I'm I'm the interrogator and following up on absolutely everything, and Bob's almost more anecdotal, and he's he's the encyclopedia of yeah. like, did you know in 1985 this happened? So okay,
1: hey. Bob's uh, super helpful with a lot of things, and um, he he does not take compliments well. At least in my experience, he's like, oh, I'm just some i'm putting words in his mouth he's like "Ah, i'm some old guy that just reads a lot like no he he says a lot of intelligent shit um he's personally helped me with uh a book uh, novel i'm on um and he just said basically uh think about the third let's say it's a three act story Mm. and the third act is very dependent on what happens in the first act and then at the same time, he gave me the advice of, um now, what are you stuck on right as if you're the characters talking about what the problem is in a separate mm. document? I'm like, that's brilliant. Holy shit. And I I was like, that's it, man. He knows what he's talking about. You and him work very well together. Um Brennan and I have talked uh, separately. I mean, off here, separately from talking to you. Um, that you guys are what we would like to end up being like. You guys are very much so the, again, the idyllic, uh, the the idle situation of uh, podcasts and horror. And I think you're doing a good job. Um, But Brennan, enough of my rambling. Why don't you take over?
0: I was interested to see where you were going with the idol thing. I I didn't know if you were going to tell him that you have a small golden statue of him in your closet that
1: you pray to. (laughs) No. Did you want to bring that up? It's it's made of gum. It's like healthy teeth, tacky, and hey, <laughs> and, and Arnold.
0: <laughs> um, I thought it was really interesting what you said about how one of the reasons you started the podcast was to become a better public speaker, because you know, again, I've talked with Patrick off the air about um how we really enjoy your interview style about how the dialogue has uh, a, a lot of very smooth flow to it um is that something that you were able to craft pretty quickly feel comfortable with pretty quickly or did it really take a lot of work so it's a
2: good question and i mean i think if you listen to the early episodes my Interview style is much more like an interview rather than a conversation. It's a little bit more rigid. And whilst there will be follow ups, they aren't quite as in depth, or I won't continue with a subject for as long. And I think as well, I wouldn't go to the really, really dark places. So if somebody mentioned losing. A loved one or battling with mental health issues and things. I would be respectful and listen to what they were saying, but then I wouldn't push it. I wouldn't ask more about it. I, I suppose for, for fear of upsetting the person or for fear of uh, offending them in some way. But then the, the more I, podcasted the more I had these conversations the more I listened to other conversations the more I realized actually going to these authentic and painful places makes for the best conversations and actually I've had guests who have said that it's strangely therapeutic it's almost like going on this as horror is having some sort of therapy session and I, I can't exactly pinpoint when the shift happened but I know that episode 100 David Moody spoke about mental health issues and I think that was the first time we'd really properly spoken about it and both of us went in depth and a lot of people really appreciated that and they said that it's good that people are talking about it and I know that from that moment onward I was like right now no no subject is is off limits and so even when there's been very uncomfortable things like Brian Keane talking about the the passing of Jesus and Steve Rasnick Tem talking about the passing of his wife and of his son. We spoke about it and of course the idea is to catch people looking good we also say that if there's anything you're uncomfortable with let us know we can edit it out and I think having that safety net allows people to be more authentic and to be more vulnerable because you know that if you decide actually I wish I hadn't said that then I can edit it as if it didn't happen and the reality is that most of the time People don't want it edited out. They've, they've captured something that's very real. And so now I don't find that difficult. Um, I, I'm listening very intently. I'm occasionally jotting down notes so I know what to follow up with. And I'm, I'm trying to. Find where's the point of interest, or what is the subject that a lot of people are going to want to find out about, but that has just been glossed over. And sometimes in reading other interviews or listening to other interviews, there will be something that someone says in passing, and it's never followed up on. And it's like, right, that is being noted down. That is something we're going to talk about, and. And I I think, yeah, I I think it's good that we're getting people on again who we had in the really early episodes. So before episode 100 and definitely before episode 50, because I just know that my confidence as a podcaster has grown since then as well. And so i I think as well, something that I've never said um on a podcast before is that i one of the reasons that I didn't like public speaking was that I didn't really like my voice, and so I didn't want to i I, I don't know how to how to put this, but when when I was younger and in, initially. You know, of of course, I liked my voice because it's my voice It's how (laughs) words are expressed. But then there was a point where some people at school were kind of taking the piss out of it. And so then that made me more um, conscious of of it and then kind of wanted me to, to shy away from it. So if anything involved public speaking, it's like I don't want to have to do that because I want to. Protect myself from basically being bullied or having shitty comments and things like that. And so I think when I started out the podcast as well, there there, there was a great and largely irrational fear that people were just gonna be like, "Ha ha, she's got a stupid fucking voice, so <laughs> <laughs> we're not gonna listen to that." And like, but but that was a, a genuine feeling that that would happen and I don't even 100% know what it was that I didn't like about my voice. Maybe maybe I wanted it to be more masculine like good old Bob Pastorella or (laughs) Benjamin Percy but there was also a shift where I started to embrace it and I think as well if you listen to different episodes and you listen, you listen to me now, there's there's literally more confidence, not just in what I say, but in, in the tone and the way in which I express my voice. Because oh. I, I think I embraced, well, like, look, if I try and sound like someone like Phil Anselmo, I'm going to sound pretty fucking silly, but actually <laughs> maybe... My voice is like a little bit more gentler. So actually play off on and do that in, in the best possible way that you can and embrace who you are. And I think that this is a theme that like kind of we're going to keep coming back to. And I think that people come back to in all sorts of good conversations, which is to embrace what is and who is authentically you. And so. I think the, the confidence in in both who I was and the questions that I was asking really led to a better product. And I've never said this as well, but sometimes, like, my, my fear of how I sounded was like it was going to put people off so much that I said to Dan Howarth, do you think you'd be better off introducing the show? Because I didn't want people to hear me as the first voice and think, oh, fuck that. Like, I don't, you know, it, as I say, completely irrational, but went irrational. But at the same time, this did come from people being shitty at school. So it wasn't like I invented it. But yeah, I mean, if you think about how people were at school, like children and adults do, do not always <laughs> act the same. So you know that that's not a reasonable A reasonable way To be So hopefully that that Go on Patrick I'm gonna piggyback
1: on what you're saying about being You know essentially bullied Um in your voice like I feel Like I still have a lisp uh, I went to speech therapy In school In uh, grammar school so it was when I was Like I don't know nine or ten um, kids were dicks about it and it was a big deal and I still feel like I have it. So it shit, some shit just doesn't leave the back of your mind. It's like they're making fun of it. Wait, how did you say that word? Which kind of ties into their watching your upcoming collaboration with, and I actually didn't mean to do that deliberately. That kind of just bled in accidentally. Patrick, real
0: quick, before you move right away. In, don't that. you
1: ever embarrass me in front of Michael again. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to do it five more times
0: just All this right, episode. I'm it's... literally keeping a tally right now. Go ahead. Um, wh- what's kind of funny about that is I made a note, you know. Another that bully. When, when, <laughs> Jesus Christ, man. Um, <laughs> sorry, sorry, sorry. Go ahead. Don't you fucking interrupt me again. Um, I made a note, you know, when we moved on to talking about this is horror to – you know, generally the question of why did you decide to do it is going to come up anyway. But yeah. I was interested, especially because when I uh, started listening, and that was the first horror podcast, horror fiction related podcast I ever stumbled across, I remember your voice being so distinct. And I I almost had a theory that this guy started this podcast because this is the perfect voice to introduce a horror podcast. It Like, I, I, I hear you come in and welcome uh, your audience, and I almost expect to hear, like, this thunder crash in the background, this, like, 1930s <laughs> cinema sound effect. It, it has that, like, perfect quality to it. So it's very interesting to me that you struggled with it. And I don't know if interesting is the right word. I'm certainly not. Um. Uh, yeah, no, th- there goes my train of thought. I, I, I think a... it's the good word. It's a good okay. word. <laughs> I find it interesting that that's something you struggled with, because as a new listener, I said, this is fucking fantastic. This is absolutely perfect. This is this is what, um, you know, it sets the tone for what you're about to hear. Um, so I, I wanted to put that in before we move on to the next subject.
2: Yeah. And. I think I mean, like I say, this is the first time I believe that I'm like very explicitly acknowledging it on air. But I think actually I should, because also particularly for people who think, well, you know, it's it's the perfect voice for horror. and, and, And that's not the first time that I've heard someone say that, which obviously when I hear things like that, it gives me a great confidence boost and but the point is that if to some people this seems so irrational it might make them question the things that they question about themselves and their own fears and the things that they're scared about and that they kind of perceive as a weakness and I I think I didn't want to talk about it aloud because it's almost like it made it Real or I think there was like oh maybe people haven't noticed that that it's a bit of a weird voice and then if I say it aloud they're like oh fuck yeah it is we're not listening fuck you you've said it now and it's so it's so stupid but but yeah like if I think about horror generally and horror history a lot of the really famous speakers and Voices have a distinct voice and a distinct style. I mean, look at Vincent Price, for example. Yes. So that's not what you call a, a standard voice. It's not like, oh, he's, he's your everyday man, but it, it's so perfect. And so to hear other people say similar things about me is great. And, and to be honest, I think that is what people were taking the piss out of when I was. At school, that it was just a little bit different. So there wasn't anything specific. It was just like, <clears throat> Oh, you don't have a, a Midlands accent in the same way that we do. You're not sounding like you're Ozzy Osbourne. <laughs> it's like, well, no, no, I'm not. Sorry about that. But actually <laughs> now I'm, I'm glad that I'm not. I, this is, this is how I sound. And this is. You know i'm I'm embracing it for better or for worse, and from the feedback, it seems to be for better. So, yeah, I appreciate you saying that to me. And yeah, luckily, there's no real confidence issues anymore. And no no, no one's ever said like, "Oh, fuck you. <laughs> I heard you introduce it, and now now I'm not gonna listen.
0: so sorry i'm gonna i'm gonna squeeze in one more question before you you move along so you know we talked about how just over the well over 300 episodes you have recorded you've developed that confidence Mm -hmm. did you find that when uh, a guest like chuck polinick comes on that that gets shaken at all or have you done this so often that even having a big name um you're able to just kind of do it pretty steady
2: Okay, so a few points off that. Now, one thing specific about Chuck that is far before him coming on is he actually, he inadvertently helped me kind of have confidence with my voice and the way that I express things because what I did when I was trying to really kind of hone in on my style of speaking was listen to people who i think are great speakers and are eloquent and who who i'd almost like to emulate and one thing that was perhaps a problem early on was that i was almost too rushed and i felt like oh i've got to get the question out quickly <laughs> otherwise maybe it, it's dead air or people are gonna get bored it's like tell us about your new book patrick well fucking hell fucking hell (laughs) calm down but but chuck he's got such a deliberate and methodical way of speaking and pausing that i i almost had confidence that i could do that as well and i don't when i'm listening to chuck it's not jarring and so As you can tell, this happens with me as well. But actually, it gives me time to process what I'm about to say, because otherwise something will come out and I haven't even thought about it properly. (laughs) But if I'm talking a a little bit more slowly, then I can actually formulate the question. So I might start a sentence and I don't know how it's going to end until I get to the conclusion. But because I've given myself these gaps... I I can then end it on a reasonable note as per that sentence. But back to the question about Chuck
0: specifically. Real quick, I'm going to interrupt you. You you have made me wonder every time, every time I hear you say I wonder and pause, I'm going to assume you have no idea where you're going yet.
2: The interesting thing with that, and while the interesting thing with that is similar to, I wonder, is that a lot of people do, do that and do employ similar techniques to allow themselves thinking time. I mean, it's a good way to avoid saying um and uh, but I feel... It's making me more conscious of it now because it's like I'm giving you the secrets away so you now know that when I say, oh, that's a good question or "Hmm, let me ponder that one, it's like he doesn't have a fucking clue what he's going to say. I do joke to Bob sometimes, particularly when we're answering Patreon questions, I say I can't wait to find out what I think about that because I'm literally... Coming up with the answer on the spot, I guess a conversation with me is very much like showing your workings in maths or in math for our American listeners, which is probably most of them
1: just like hospital or the hospital or vacation. Or you guys say going to hospital and you guys say vacation way differently, and it threw me off the first we time. We say holiday that's it holiday yeah 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 um so let's jump to hang on a minute i have (laughs) an oh oh they're (laughs) still okay we're still on this my bad yeah sorry michael very (laughs) reminiscent of what we were talking about actually (laughs) my mistake
2: hold hold your fucking horses let's not let's not promote new novel they're watching which i want people to buy just yet let's Let's leave a little bit more time. We've only been speaking for over an hour,
1: I think. Can, can, can I go pee again? <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I'm not
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> go on. Off, off you bloody go. <laughs> i will to get rid of my headsies,
2: too. <laughs> Maybe you need to make a note of that. I don't know. Maybe <laughs> we're just doing it live.
0: One of, one of us has to write it down, certainly. <laughs>
2: But I get far less nervous now than I used to get. But I do think when there's somebody like Chuck Kornick or when there was Lawrence Block, the legendary crime writer, or even Charlene Harris or Joe R. Lansdale for the first time, Ramsey Campbell for the first time, often these are people... That I've been reading for so long that it feels like there's a lot at stake. And I think with Chuck more than anyone else, I knew that there would be. I knew that fucking hell, I need some water. Make a note to to edit that out. Or people just get the, the cough of horror.
0: Either our our editor won't do it. Our editor won't do it. Even if I send him a note.
2: Well, you better fucking do it. Or <laughs> your podcast is looking unprofessional. And now now you've heard that on the podcast. <laughs> so you are going to edit that out? Probably not going to edit it out. i going
0: to edit anything out at this point.
2: <laughs> <laughs> probably not. <laughs> anyway, when I know that the stakes are that, Hi, there is a little bit of pressure. And I think with Chuck in particular, I really not only researched, as I always do, but I tried to read as many of his books, even rereading, so that I just had such an in-depth knowledge going in. If I'm interviewing someone who I know well or I know from online and we've had interactions, there's probably not gonna be any nerves or anything like that. I think I think mostly the nerves are with the unknown. So even if it's not that famous a writer, but I've had no interaction, i I might not be nervous, but like there, that there's some awareness that this is a wild card. We don't know how this is going to go. And I think Everyone has something that they can talk about for a long time, but as the interviewer, as the host, your job is to find out what that is. And there are occasions where I'm asking a question, getting a very quick answer, and it's like I'm just firing things. It's like, God damn it, what is the topic that is going to make you talk for a long time? I'm very, very occasionally. There are people who just aren't talkers. That's just not really their their style or their personality. But it can make a podcast a little bit difficult. You know, if you're not lucky of a talker, you might want to consider whether a podcast, a talking medium is the best way to promote your book. And now, Patrick, you can finally ask your question that you've been waiting half an hour to ask. There's going to be some notes for you to edit out me coughing. If you don't edit it out, you're going to get called unprofessional. <clears throat> if you don't edit this bit out, they're going to hear unprofessional again. And again, that's three times now. So <laughs> do your job. <laughs> uh, <laughs>
0: Question. He drank water while you were gone. He didn't want the listeners to know that he has to drink water in during, you know, a three hour podcast. <laughs> uh, I drank seltzer water, motherfucker so i'm talking about you not everything is about you oh my bad yeah
1: <laughs> so before i get to my question um i was like that with the people of host the uh, the screenwriter the two actresses, actresses uh i don't know why i just got crazy nerves i just kept thinking like there's their movies like the most popular horror movie at the moment and it just kind of was like fucking with my head i think did you watch that yet
2: no, I haven't watched that yet. That's oh. a, a sensitive point because it's not out in Japan yet. But <laughs> <laughs> I will, I will watch it. But I mean, you've answered your own question there. I don't even think people don't have to be really famous, but if they mean a lot to you, then you're going to get a little bit nervous because you know that host really clicked with you. It really resonated, and so. You want to make this as enjoyable a conversation and and worth their time as well. Sure. I want I wonder if there's something to do with the fact that it was a movie and your specialism is more books. I wonder if you feel that talking to people from the movies is a little bit more of an unknown quantity. And so there's there's going to be more more nerves surrounding that. And I've only interviewed a few directors. I mean, of course, the, the first was Episode One with Jennifer Lynch, which is a pretty cool way to to begin a podcast. <laughs> but that I think this as horror is pretty well known within the fiction world, but in the movies they they might not know it. So that it, it's going to be more interesting to see if they vibe with me but that there will be in the future more conversations with interviewers well, not with interviewers i'm the fucking interview with <laughs> filmmakers and with directors so that will be that will be coming up that's something we've got planned
1: i would think especially since uh the girl in video is uh options and or is that the correct terminology optioned yeah so
2: at the moment there is interest In making it into a film, we have several parties that are interested. My manager, Ryan, has been shopping it around. So it's not optioned yet, but once the paperwork is signed, then it will be optioned. So it's kind of in the pre-option stage. And there's also hopefully going to be some interest in their watching. Ryan will be shopping that one around as well. And I believe you had a question about their watching.
1: Uh, I want to talk about the girl in video real quick, so we keep it in chronological <laughs> okay, order. Well, I,
2: I fucked up that. I I thought I'm going to segue you wonderfully.
0: <laughs> that didn't happen.
1: Because <laughs> uh, the girl in video is still new. Uh, I know it doesn't seem like it, because uh, we are a very short-spanned... Uh, generation i guess but the girl video came out the girl video came out this year uh i listened to it on audio uh brennan listened to it on uh, he didn't listen to it he read it so before, i listened
0: to it in my head he listened to it yeah. in his
1: head he read it to himself in his mind so my experience with the and i don't want to fuck up his name who's the narrator again rj bailey yeah his voice was perfect it does not match up with his face at least to me uh it's it just it's it's perfect and it i've that was my first experience with an audio uh audible book not a first time experience with an audio book but with audible um i really enjoyed it when he was reading from the point of view of a female he did perfectly um I don't think this will give anything away, but when he was impersonating the actual girl in the video, when she starts – when she starts really having dialogue and screaming uh, while trying to sing, I just started laughing so much. He did a brilliant job. Um, My experience with that book was a good one. I loved it. Um, I just – and it's not because we're buddies but I just I genuinely really enjoyed it it had a good pace um, and I think that I told Brennan this I'm like they're watching within a few chapters I'm like this is very complimentary uh, and it partners well with the growing video Um, Brennan why don't you take over I want to hear your experience with it
0: so uh, I thought the narrator on mine which was me I thought they also did a wonderful job um (laughs) I'm going to echo Patrick though. I thought the pacing was was brilliant. I thought it fit really nicely into that novella format and it just kind of it, it just kept you going. Um one one of those uh books where there's just no good place to put it down. Uh even when you get to, you know, uh paragraph breaks and um yeah. or section breaks or whatever you want to call it, it's like okay, you know like, I'm not going to be able to leave it leave it here. Um so I guess what I want to ask is, you you seem to kind of cater nicely to the novella form. Um, is that something that you've act- actively worked towards, or are you eventually looking to write something um, more novel length or longer? So, I mean,
2: firstly, Day Watching is... A novel. It's just a, a short. <laughs> oh. Novel, so
0: 60, okay. So. <laughs> so let me Wait. put in there because I read the because I read the Kindle version. I had uh I didn't have page numbers, and if I'm honest, I thought it was novella because of the pacing. Uh, because I'm I managed stuff. to fly through it in about two days. Um, if I had to make a guess at the page count on that, I would have put it under 200.
1: Yeah. Same.
2: Same. So, yeah. I don't know what the actual page count is at the moment, but it might it might be under two hundred. It's mm-hmm. still a novel because I mean the classification <laughs> of of a novel would be anything over forty thousand words. So this is coming in at just under fifty thousand. So it it's a novel, but just mm-hmm. but in answer to your question i mean i think with the story i always make sure that the story comes first rather than is it a novel is it a novella is it is it a short story so i let that dictate it so i mean for example house of bad memories which is coming out next year that's 35000 words it's just 5000 off technically being a novel and yeah, I can see how there's a temptation for me to pad it out or put like another five thousand words in, so I can say, well, it's the the second novel or the the first kind of debut without a, a collaborator. I didn't need Bob to help me add some <laughs> some extra words, but it's always about the story, what the story needs, and I. I think when I was growing up like I probably I probably liked the novel form more in the sense that like there's almost more prestige in terms of having written a novel but it's probably one of those weird prejudices just like I was told like oh you've got to make a load of money yeah you know, you're told weird things when you you're a kid that you then realize don't actually necessarily correlate with truth like, oh, the novel is the proper form. But I would much rather read a novella that keeps me engaged throughout than a novel where I start getting bored. So, I mean, when I'm writing, I'm very much concerned with keeping it pacey. I think it's fair to say I maybe have quite a filmic or a cinematic style it's pretty dialogue heavy, but I, I don't want to make any scene any longer than it absolutely has to be. So it's kind of like get in, get out, do it as quickly as as possible and just you know, make sure that you, you're you giving value to the, the reader. So it's certainly more along the minimalist rather than a maximalist style uh but there's like kind of that there are like some asides and some humor which maybe some minimalists would would say is not quite within the style but oh sorry I like to laugh sometimes (laughs) and I, I I hope as well that people who know me actually think that my writing style and voice makes a kind of sense in terms of who I am and how i am so like a lot of the subject matter is dark but then it can get a little bit awkward it can have a few jokes thrown in and i i've tried before to write comedy that isn't dark and isn't horror and i've tried to write horror that has no comedy and i can't do either it's Mm -hmm. like both parts are just part of my personality and what i like to write and admittedly for a number of stories there have been jokes that i've thrown in that have ultimately had to be cut because it's like are you aware of what's happening at that point
0: you can't (laughs) put a
2: joke in it's like yeah i suppose i suppose not so (laughs) then that goes but i will say with their watching i had max booth edit it and he actually suggested a few places to put some more jokes in and I was like for some of them I was like okay I'm gonna do that and then there were a few where it's like no I I feel putting the joke in will deflate some of the tension so it's knowing when to be funny and when not to be funny
0: yeah and you know if we're we're talking we definitely see this in their watching, but I'm thinking more along the lines of uh, girl in the video. Some mm. of the funniest, some of the parts that made me laugh out loud are just the, the little sarcastic asides, the almost like internal dialogue where mm. the character is just pointing out like how like stupid something, you know, that someone just said was, um, but, but again, those just the, the little moments, not somebody, you know, tripping and falling down a flight of stairs or something like that. It's, it's the, It's the subtle humor um, that's kind of throughout, but again, sparingly, because there are definitely some parts in that novella where you don't want a joke. And, you (laughs) know, uh, I could I could if I if I were to put in some spoilers here, I could think of at least a couple places where you could have put in a joke and I don't think it would have landed. But um, I think overall, it's nicely put in there and it's definitely reminiscent of that voice the other thing I wanted to talk about and I'm absolutely gonna probably put words in your mouth so please feel free to correct me but you know you are in no way shape or form a technophobe but you're certainly you 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 come off as wary of technology uh, or at least the effect it has on our lives um I've heard you speak about making sure that uh, notifications on social media apps are turned off so that, they are more helpful in your everyday life rather than running it. And I feel like that theme definitely made its way, of course, very blatantly into the girl in the video. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that?
2: Yeah, so there's a lot to say about that. And I mean, I'm, I'm trying to decide whether it's better to go the root in terms of my personal feelings on technology or how that played in to the girl in the video but I think with the girl in the video specifically I mean the the kind of impetus the origin was you know thinking about we're we're sent all sorts of anonymous links and emails and spam emails every day and so The idea was what would happen if you were to click the link, which you're never meant to do. And then what would happen if from there you kept making every single wrong decision and things got progressively worse and worse. But I do think and I have said that technology is both a force for good and a force for bad. And it's something that we need to be very mindful of and and we're often not and so I mean I'm, I'm drawing attention to that within the girl in the video and and showing just how terrifying that can be if it goes wrong and so from location tracking to people finding out information from your social media because it's not private and spoiler alert even if you've got private as your setting it's not truly private I mean also that could just get hacked and now suddenly that is available we've seen things like in in 2008 a load of MySpace data got breached and you see iCloud being hacked so nothing that is in That kind of techno sphere is truly private. And that is something we need to be conscious of. Even having a webcam, somebody could hack into that. That's why people like Elon Musk, they put over like a little sticker in front of their webcam. That's something I do from time to time. At the moment, I've ran out of stickers, so ooh, hackers can they get a good long look at what's happening. Not very interesting, to be honest. It's mostly me like podcasting or writing. But if that's what you're into, then enjoy. But I, I think in terms of my I don't necessarily think I personally have a fear, but I have an awareness of technology. So what the girl in the video is dealing with is privacy and data and people being privy to your most intimate moments and even where you've lived and where you've been and what you're into. But a separate point that that I think I'm actually personally more aware of, which you mentioned, is the way in which social media and apps are generated to literally rewire your brain and what i mean by that is that they're trying to create an addiction with these notifications when you see you've got like a red notification it's saying free messages it's practically impossible to not click on that so that is why there's, there's no live notifications on anything on my phone. I do not have Facebook on my phone because I personally find for whatever reason that is the one that I find more damaging and more detrimental to my mental health. And I actually think probably one of the reasons is that most of the well, quite a portion of people that I'm connected to on Facebook are people like kind of from my past life that I don't really have much in common with. So then I'm more likely to just see things that I disagree with and I'm going to exercise self restraint. I don't, I don't really reply to anything. I just let it pass. But you know, in a day to day, it, day to day I'd rather not be like, oh, that's annoying, that's annoying, that's annoying. So I don't look at Facebook a lot. Whereas Twitter, most of the people who I'm connected with are in the horror scene. Well that doesn't really mess with my mental health if it's like, oh, there's a new Stephen Graham Jones book. I'm not like, <laughs> ah, fucking <laughs> hell, you've ruined my day now. No, that's a that's a good thing. Um I will say that something that I've seen recently is people getting upset about other people unfollowing them and people have like Bob does this as well. So, Bob, I'm calling you out. But (laughs) People who have an an app installed that will tell them how many people have followed them and how many people have unfollowed them. Like either on a daily or or a weekly basis, And I don't think it's healthy to obsess over that. Absolutely. and And so this week, in fact, people were upset because there'd clearly been a glitch on Twitter that meant some people had lost hundreds of followers. But of course, it's feeding into people's paranoia because some people are thinking, well, hang on. Did that person actually unfollow me or was it just a technological glitch? But I think who cares if someone unfollows you? Like, I don't care if someone unfollows me because I unfollow people. For all sorts of reasons, it doesn't, it rarely means that I hate the person. (laughs) Maybe I just want to curate my content. So I'm getting things that are very specific to what I want. Sometimes I will unfollow someone because they've spoiled a film or a book. Now, my definition of spoiling it might be you told me how the first act ended. But it doesn't mean that I dislike you as a person. It just means that I'm very kind of uh, spoiler phobic, for want of a better word. I might also unfollow people because I just never engage with that person. I might unfollow someone because the specific subgenre they're writing in does not interest me. There's all sorts of reasons. So I, I don't. I was going to say, I don't understand why people are getting obsessed with it. I understand why. And it's because we've created this machine and these metrics where people think that more followers almost equals more self-worth. But it's dangerous to have that kind of validation. Mm. And so I vaguely know how many followers I have on Twitter. I vaguely know how many followers This Is Horror has on Twitter. And sometimes it goes down, and more often than not, it goes up. But I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> Some Sometimes people unfollow you because they have this weird thing where they follow people, and then they have to follow them back. And if they don't follow them back, then they unfollow them. Well, I rarely follow people at all, and I rarely... Follow people back on social media and in real life. I just don't go around following people that much. So, you know, I suppose in a way that links in with their watching. It was not an autobiographical book. It's very much <laughs> fiction. So I, that's really, that's a bit of a tangent that I've jumped off on, but it, it is something I've seen recently but it's one of these things that is too nuanced for me to really, I I can't say all of that in a tweet, but I just think in general, people need to care less and they need to care less about what other people think about them, but they particularly need to not draw conclusions without having any sort of evidence that anything's gone on. So Back to Bob, you gotta get rid of that automated <laughs> thing telling you who's followed and unfollowed you. It, I just I've heard can't of that. see how that's a healthy thing.
1: Yeah, I mean, I've I've heard of people having that shit, and I'm like, eh, is that where your priorities lie? Like for me, family, writing the podcast. Uh, that's just my. That's just me. Uh, I don't know, man. I, I don't. I don't really give a shit who follows and unfollows me. <laughs> it's like I got. I know who my friends are. I know who I'm friendly with. If someone's like, eh, "I'm not following you," I'm like, eh, "Okay, <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's fine." Yeah. Um. A, a couple interesting points I wanted to pull back. Um. You know, you mentioned when uh you were talking about specific points in the book about um. How even if you have privacy settings enabled, that that doesn't always it's not always as secure as you think. And I thought that was such an interesting uh, plot point in it because it would be so easy, not even that long ago, to look at um, to be vague here, I suppose, to look at, you know, the character saying, well, you know, that's not possible because I have privacy settings enabled and say, You know, this person must be a, uh, you know, a hacker or something supernatural is going on here. But now we look at that and say, shit, that's absolutely right. Uh, the privacy settings don't really mean anything. Um, and it's, it's that kind of, uh, real world horror that, you know, focuses on that technology piece. The other thing that I wanted to say is you said you personally feel like Facebook is the most damaging, and I would absolutely echo that. Um, if I had to put forth a, a theory, I would say that just we we almost have an, a sense of ownership with Facebook because we are that generation where we could join it because we were in college and we were the only people who were allowed to be part of that uh, wave. And then all of a sudden, you know, everybody's racist uncle can jump on and, and post their minion memes about how you know put your put your terrible take put your bad theory in um but it's 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 hard to kind of shake that because i do have facebook still and i i think i only open it just to make myself mad at this point (laughs) i don't really get anything else out of it
2: (laughs) yeah I i think the only reason that i still have facebook is because facebook messenger does allow me to sometimes talk to some writers or even some old friends that I don't really have another way of connecting with. And for whatever reason, even though I think Twitter's the superior platform, I feel people are more receptive to talk via inbox on Facebook than they are, say, direct messages on Twitter. And actually, as I'm saying that, maybe the reason is that because if you've got a friend on Facebook, you actually have had to connect with them. But direct messages on Twitter, anyone could slide into your DMs, as the kids are saying.
0: (laughs) The kids are saying that. All right. (laughs) Um, we, We definitely want to move on to talking about their watching because Patrick read almost the entire book in three days and he would like to brag about that. So go ahead, sir.
1: I'm at 96% That's so <laughs> close to finishing last chapter so you're I at 96%
0: like...
2: <laughs>
1: 96% I didn't have any were
2: more time you at, were you at 96% when we started this conversation or when you went off did you like read a bit more
1: no believe it or not uh when we started <laughs> have you just like,
0: been reading it during this? <laughs> <laughs> no. When we started, man,
1: I, I typically don't read books while I'm talking to my guests. Good. It's, got, it's a bad practice. So I uh this is a weird jumping off point, but uh you have this one character, and this doesn't spoil anything. You have this one character named Karen, and she's a total I'll use your English term, a total cunt. Um, did you use Karen as a name for a particular reason, because it's so easy to call anyone like her a Karen, or is it just, is there another reason to it? Hmm. <laughs> oh, he's thinking. I'm wondering. Uh, I'm thinking whether
2: I should answer that truthfully, <laughs> is what I'm thinking. <laughs>
1: <laughs> did you expect an American to use the term cunt?
2: Uh I'm absolutely fine with people saying cunt. You can say cunt as much as you as you desire. I think the the first ten minutes of speaking to Alan Baxter, we probably said cunt more than other words, so that is fine. Um
1: I love Alan. Karen no, oh, Alan. I love Al- Alan. I know.
0: I know. <laughs> I'd rather talk about Alan Baxter rather than answering the question. That's okay too.
2: Honestly, I'd rather talk about Alan Baxter than most things. But that's just <laughs> how I roll. This is the—I mean, this is the Alan Baxter special, right? This isn't Halloween. This is an Alan Baxter special too. Every episode celebrate the an, is a Alan
0: Baxter. Yeah. Mm.
2: So, OK. Yes, I deliberately used the name Karen because <laughs> of the connotations that people have to to Karen at the moment. But I was reluctant to to confirm that because, you know, that there are some people called Karen who are not happy that that, <laughs> that, that is. But it, it, it seemed too easy an opportunity to pass it up to to have this character who, for want of a better word, just turns their backs like a total Karen and then disappears. <laughs> she's, she's got to be called Karen, so maybe that's gonna lose me a few people called Karen who who are, <laughs> are listeners to this. But I I think if I was called Karen, I'd have a sense of humour about it because if you're not a Karen but you're called Karen. Then you shouldn't be offended by it. That's so true. there you go.
1: I love it. Well played. <laughs> Let, and just one more thing before I think Brennan was about to ask a question, but uh, this really does feel like it was. And I haven't read Bob yet, Bob Passarella. Um It felt like you wrote it. It's your. It feels like your voice. Um, not a knock on Bob. I just. Uh, I'm curious how your collaboration process was.
2: So I think probably the reason that it feels like that is because I went over every single sentence meticulously to make sure that it was uniform and that there was a cohesive style. Mm. Because we wanted to make sure that there were, that there were not two separate voices. We wanted it to be that when you read it, you could not tell Who wrote which part? And to be honest, all but one person has been able to, has not been able to tell who wrote which part. The only person who knows a few bits that I wrote, and this isn't even my wife, (laughs) she's read it, but Dan Howarth, because he fucking... He knows like my specific humor so well. And there are some things that are so British that it's like, that was definitely you who wrote that, wasn't it? And it's like, yeah, all right. Guilty as charged. But the thing is that if you see something British, you can't actually think, Oh, Michael wrote that section because sometimes Bob would put something American in. And i change it to a British reference. So, yes, I put the word in, but the whole section might have been written by Bob. But actually, at this point, we've been over it so many times that apart from very specific jokes that I made or some specific things that Bob did that really resonated with me, I can't even remember who <laughs> wrote which part. And yeah, we, we have read this a lot of times to make sure that the voice is consistent and that uh, it, it just flows as one unit. In terms of how the collaboration worked initially, we came up with a plan together. It was mostly a chapter by chapter plan, but there was wriggle room if it organically went in a different direction so Bob would write a bit he'd send it to me I'd go over what he'd written to make it uniform then I'd add my bit then Bob would go over what I'd written to make it uniform and add his bit and we would repeat that until we had what was the novella at the time what is now a novel but this has been through a lot of drafts, and unfortunately for for my time, every time we kind of adjust something, I kind of have to read through the whole fucking thing to make sure (laughs) that it's now consistent and that I haven't actually now contradicted that little bit that we've added in. But what you're reading now is radically different from... Not even the first draft, but the first this might be finished product, because initially it was about 20,000 words. We got rid of an entire character. We added the P.I. in. Uh, we expanded the role of Lexi. Um, there's like great sections that were not in the initial drafts that we did, the ending is different from from the original ending that we had. But I'm very pleased with what we've got. And this is like as near to our original vision. And I think probably like the girl in the video, it's going to be polarizing. There are going to be people who love what we've done. There are going to be people who hate what we've done or the story we were telling was not the story that that they expected us to tell. That's happened with a girl in the video. That will probably happen if they're watching. But ultimately this is the story that we wanted to tell. It's like with Jordan Peele's Us, that wasn't the story I kind of wanted him to tell. I wanted it to focus more on that family dynamic that you have in the first act. I thought when it became more a slashier film, it became a little bit more boring, and I, I, I wanted more of the characters and the family. But you know, that's what he wanted to do, and actually, he did it very effectively. It just wasn't quite what I expected.
1: Hmm. Was that's a great answer. I wish I had a follow up to that, but I have another irrelevant question to the whole entire answer. Uh, Brian, is that based on. Did you name him after Brian Keane? No, we did not <laughs> name him after Brian Keane. Oh, damn. All right, <laughs> Brennan. Go ahead, bud. You, you know what? You
0: <laughs> really messed with me with the whole, like, you going back in and replacing some of uh Bob's American words with British words because I thought I had you. Um, I, actually, I could be wrong. I have no idea. Maybe uh, calling an erection a stork, maybe that's a Texas... <laughs> uh, I just know that I've never heard that up here in the uh, northern part. Is is that a British thing? I've never heard that term before.
2: Talking about a stork on is a very fucking British way of referring to an erection. It mean, certainly sounds very British. <laughs> also, yeah. the
1: way that he spelled feces threw me off. Because... Really? Uh, British, they spell it F A E C E S. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, we sometimes
2: them. throw an A into into words where you just have an E. I mean, it, it's the same with the word pedophile. But let's move on and fucking not expand on that. That's not oh, the direction we want to go in. From uh, the, the direction that Max <laughs> tried to take you in when you were talking about stephen king
1: so we'll,
0: we'll Michael, he succeeded with flying colors he he forced pat to walk right into that low-hanging branch
1: he knew the he knew the idiot would take the bait and he did
0: no oh, no so actually what i want to ask you to do is i'm just realizing we talked about the girl in the video for a while and anybody who knows nothing about that book uh, now knows that it deals in some semblance with technology, and that it has fast pacing and nothing else. So I'm wondering, could you give us kind of that spoiler-free back cover synopsis of uh, their watching?
2: Of their watching. So not yep. not of the girl in the video. Unless you want to do both. Okay. It's just you were talking
0: about the girl in the video and then you said so can you give us <laughs> a, and I to a talk, to talk and realize that we're having in-depth conversation about it while somebody listening to this may say, That's fantastic. I don't understand what this fucking book is about.
2: Well I will read you the the first draft of the actual back cover synopsis because we have that. Um It's nearly done. I've just got to tinker a few lines, but here it is. From the host of This Is Horror podcast comes a dark thriller of obsession, paranoia and voyeurism. After relocating to a small coastal town, Brian discovers a hole that gazes into his neighbor's bedroom. Every night she dances for his eyes only. But soon, Brian suspects he's not the only one watching, and she's not the only one being watched. They're watching as the Wicker Man meets Body Double with a splash of Suspiria. That's the synopsis.
0: (laughs) That's the recorded ad, too. (laughs) It might might be. (laughs) We'll, we'll, we'll We'll get it to you. You can slap it right on the front of your show. Brilliant. Yeah.
1: And you you, why'd you change the title? You used to call it Peeper Rituals, and now it's uh, They're Watching.
2: Well, Peeper Ritual was originally a working title. And, ah. and we could not, for probably three years, come up with anything that we thought was better. So it almost started as a joke. It's like, what are maybe some thematic concerns? We've got paper and we've got Ritual. We're just gonna call this paper Ritual because we need to save the document as something. But then we were like, this is kind of this is kind of perfect. And we were always open to having another title. And we damn well tried a lot of times. But then when I sent it to my film manager, Ryan, he, he loved it and he said, okay, I think I can sell this, you know, to be adapted into a film, but I'm just not sure about the title. I'm not sure if that says what we're after. I don't know if it's going to be easy to sell something called Peeper Ritual to the film industry. And so there's another novel that I've written that was called They're Watching and that was the reason that we didn't use the title for this one because I thought well I've already got a novel called They're Watching but They're Watching is even better than People Ritual as a title and I thought well the original They're Watching is not out yet it's still in first draft but this is coming out and we need a title so you know what it, it's having their watching i can deal with the artist formerly known as their watching whenever i decide to release that one so that is essentially why we changed it was never meant to be called people ritual but then we couldn't get rid of it and then ryan <laughs> said whoa i don't think we can sell <laughs> that novel as people ritual So then it became they're watching, which I think is the perfect title anyway. And it's going to look great combined with the front cover that Pi is creating. Um, I've seen an early draft of it. It's not, it's not quite done yet, but you, you've got like a kind of like hole in the wall and an eye looking through it. And you've got some wallpaper with a fish motif it looks really good is probably doesn't sound as good as it looks, but if you've seen Pi's art for the girl in the video house, house at the bottom of a lake, uh, the visible filth, the Elvis room, he's a fucking good artist. It's in safe hands.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I was going to say most definitely like, you know you, you say oh that i'm not i'm not doing it justice i'm not describing it well but again just being familiar with that artwork of girl in the video with how much it pops um and house at the bottom of the lake is one of my favorite covers just absolutely completely nailed down so i have uh, i have uh, utter faith that this one will be equally kind of held up there um so is that out on october 31st like that day, or is it just around then?
2: We are certainly aiming for it to be out on October the 31st. That is the plan. I have never cut a release date so fine. Normally, I would have like months of build up, but it just seemed too perfect not to release it for Halloween. So, Unfortunately, in this COVID landscape, time scales and things are a little bit of a lottery and are forever changing. But assuming that things aren't delayed because of COVID, like logistically in terms of printers and distributors, then that should be coming out on October the 31st. It will be available as paperback and ebook and then early next year there will be an audio book narrated by rj bailey who was the narrator that you praised on the girl in the video and he also did nice. water for drowning the ray clearly novella that we put out so so actually patrick if you enjoyed the girl in the video narration i think you'd really enjoy water for drowning as well
1: mm. Yeah, uh, by Ray Cluley. I definitely want to check that out, man. Yeah. Um, I don't know what else to ask without spoiling their watching. I really enjoy it. Bryn and I have talked a little bit about it back and forth when we were reading it, and um, I just think it's a book worth picking up. Uh, I, I think that people will be excited about this. Um, and Patrick,
0: I would also jump in and add, Michael, you said that, you know, you – you expect the reaction to be kind of mixed that some Mm. people will think it's going one way and not necessarily be pleased. I suppose with the way it goes, uh, whereas some people might love the way it ends up. Um, what I kind of liked about it is I had absolutely no freaking clue where the hell it was going at any given point. Um, Mm. I, you know, combine that with, with the, uh, with the way it's paced, with the way it moves, um, and the fact that you just don't really, you leave the the reader unsettled, almost. You just don't quite know what the hell's going on um, or what you can expect to happen next in this kind of uh, uh, world-slash-apartment complex you've created. Um, I think it's definitely worth picking up just for that created atmosphere.
2: Yeah, and that that's just a wonderful... Compliment and it's great when I hear things like that when basically a reader echoes back exactly what you hoped to, to create and what you hope to evoke. And I mean, with both the girl in the video and their watching, I wanted to create something where people couldn't predict where it was going to go and where there would be surprises. And of course, they're watching. It's too early to have specific criticisms of it, seeing as like hardly anyone's read it at this stage. But with the girl in the video, I will say that even the people who seem to hate it, they didn't predict where it was going to go. In fact, a lot of people didn't like it because it didn't go where they wanted it to go. And well, what, what can you do? It went where I wanted it to go. It went where it was <laughs> going to go. Um, there's, I mean, there's potential room for a sequel to it. Another thing I haven't ever said on a podcast is when I originally conceived of the idea for the girl in the video, it was going to be a dual narrative. I was going to write a much longer piece where you had one section from the protagonist, Freddie's point of view, and another from the actual girl in the video. Uh-huh. But Ooh. in the end, I decided to just do it from Freddie's point of view. I felt that if I had this narrative, it might exist too much which would then zap some of the tension mm. and the atmosphere and the atmosphere from the the freddy perspective sections but i i would consider either writing a sequel where it's like okay this is what happens next in that world or i would consider writing one where it's like okay this is all from the perspective of the girl in the video i could even do one that kind of combines the two i mean we've seen a number of of stories where they're both a sequel and 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 well what what even is the word it's not a prequel a sequel and something that is simultaneously a lung the same timeline as the. There, maybe it's a sidequel. So I do a sidequel and a sequel.
0: <laughs> Sounds <laughs> terrible, but I don't think there's another word for it, or at least yeah. not one I'm familiar with. So yeah, that's a really. Cool. That's a really interesting concept because I, I can't picture it. Like, um, I can certainly picture um either a uh, sequel or a, uh, basically a second book. Um, that examines the girl in the video's perspective, but I feel like the air of mystery that's created from really not knowing anything yeah. or, or more yeah. than, you know, you give us from the initial perspective, I think that's what makes it work. Um, yeah. Yeah. We, I, we were I, talking... Oh, sorry, go ahead. Well, I'd,
2: I think for those reasons, I'd be reluctant to actually write the side quill. As you put it. <laughs> So I think I think the sequel would be more likely because if you go for a simultaneous timeline, you do run the risk of just completely destroying the impact of the original and losing a lot of the fans who who liked it. Um, And it is kind of like when you have some of the Halloween films that are explaining the Michael Myers origin story. Mm. I think as well with the monster in horror, the the time where you see the monster and you begin to understand the monster, it diminishes some of the impact because, of course, we're going to be scared of what we can't see or what we can't understand. But the moment you understand it, it becomes less scary mm. And luckily at the moment, I've got a load of original different stories that I'm working on. So it's not as if there aren't other ideas. So the the girl in the video chapter for the foreseeable future is, is kind of off limits. And the, the exciting thing will be the film adaptation. And so that, that could give it a, a completely different ending or a completely different feel. So That that will be interesting because it might be that some of the people who didn't like the book prefer the film. But the people who liked the book aren't so into the film. I mean, (laughs) oh, hitting my microphone, obviously (laughs) getting angry.
0: But yeah, we'll we'll see. Now, we were talking about uh, changing titles earlier. Uh, we heard from an anonymous source that the original oh, title for the girl in the video was the girl in the videotape. Is that true? Yeah. It is videotape.
2: Uh, yeah, I, I knew as soon as you said anonymous source and original title that it, yeah, it was definitely going to be the There, There was an ongoing joke. With me and Max Booth there, who may or may not be your your anonymous source, that I can't um,
0: I can't reveal that. It would
2: be called the girl in the video open bracket tape close bracket. But I <laughs> I did I did point out to to Max that actually a lot of these videos are MP4 files, so that didn't even make sense. So. It would have to be the girl in the MP4 file, which I feel just doesn't have quite a, a ring to it. So uh, it, it is not true that that was ever the original title. But it is true that Max tried to to force that title upon me and even threatened to cancel the contract if I if I didn't go along with his demands. But I stayed strong in Hopefully, Max is pleased that he didn't cancel the contract, because I think it's doing pretty well for both me and PMMP.
0: (laughs) Well, if if Max pushes the issue, and I'm not saying that the anonymous source is Max, but if if he were to push the issue, uh, you could always try the argument that a girl would not actually fit inside of a videotape. So the title would be very misleading.
2: Yeah. I mean unless you made a very, very big tape or a very, very small girl, I suppose, but I don't I don't know if if I don't even think a baby could fit inside a videotape. <laughs> so I think I think you'd have to go the route of making the tape bigger, but then you'd have to make like a massive VHS machine. It seems a lot of hassle for an obsolete medium just to have <laughs> a a a title um also i would argue the girl in the videotape exists it's a film called the ring it's a book called ring by koji suzuki that is the girl in the videotape
1: this is the a girl good-
2: in in a video on the internet mp4
1: like, file it just sounds like a porno well, and, that, and, you know,
0: that regardless so of that last comment, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, I think we can all agree that the logistics <laughs> of, uh, you know, the girl in the videotape are very confusing to the average reader, and the title it's released under certainly works.
2: Well, I'm glad to hear that you think so. So,
0: that's, I'm on to close then. So, Michael, it's it's been a pleasure. We've taken up an awful lot of your uh, midday, I think, our evening, your midday. Uh, where can people follow you?
2: Well, you can connect with me on Twitter at Wilson the Writer. You can check out my website, michaeldavidwilson.co.uk. If the .co.uk is too confusing for American listeners, I also own .com, so you can do that one, too. And you can listen to This Is Horror Podcast. You can listen to it on all mediums, Apple Podcasts, Mm -hmm. Spotify, Overcast, wherever you get your podcasts. So connect with me there. Listen to the show, interviews with Chuck Paulinick, Joe R. Lansdale, Ellen Datlow, Victor Lavelle I'm not going to list everyone We've done over 350 episodes
1: <laughs> Michael, we appreciate your time It really is a pleasure talking to you I love talking to you off air I love talking to you on air We want to have you back Hopefully you and Bob can come uh, We can figure that out sometime um, And we're for all listeners listening to this episode This is part one of a Halloween The first Halloween special for Dead Headspace Bob Pastorella will be on part two As a two part special What he will say Not sure We'll find out Michael thank you for joining us sir Please uh, check out Well, I really don't have to say please If you don't know this is horror I guess you're not much of a horror fan Because that is the number one source in my opinion For horror fiction Brandon thank you for joining me As always as my co-pilot Listeners I hope you have a good time Good day. Good morning. Good anything. Thank you, Michael. Alright, Thank well, you. Have a great, a, great day. What a terrible way to end that on my part. You,
0: you just uh, Joe Biden to the horror community he said uh, if you don't listen to this is horror, you ain't you ain't horror.
1: <laughs> yeah. I that yeah, I was very, very uh, passionate about that. If you don't listen to this is horror, go fuck yourself. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
2: We
1: are all
2: around. You are now meeting Deadhead Space. Mm. That's a good question, I can say. <laughs> We're watching video, and so I just need to acknowledge that Patrick has left.
0: Since Patrick's he's not here to hear us talk about him, uh, you know, he... He he doesn't always drink on the air because he uh you know can't always hold a coherent thought as longtime listeners will know from the episodes that he announces that he's drinking on the show. He also uh you know can't hold his bladder so he's run off to the little boy's room. And he's gonna be so thrilled that I told everybody.
2: <laughs> yeah, well, it's, it's my fault for acknowledging it, but it,
0: it was just it was amusing because
2: he almost seemed to run like. <laughs> Like, oh, God, you need you need to go that much anyway. May, maybe this will be edited out, but it, it probably won't because I've heard some bits <laughs> with, with 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 you, particularly when you spoke to Max Booth. And I think there was an acknowledgement that you might edit something and it didn't. So this, this is going in. This, we're live, motherfuckers in here. I'm not writing down catch- time. That means
0: no- <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> nobody's he's keeping back, track of it. <laughs> he's back of
2: oh, Hey, hey, Patrick, so I um, I acknowledge to everyone that you just fucked off for a bit, but don't worry, oh, I haven't, I, I text I haven't answered the question yet, so oh, you get to, to hear it, that's that's what you get for being unprofessional <laughs> and leaving.
0: I text Brennan. I know, I've pissed you off. <laughs> right on the time, because we literally just talked about
1: you going to the bathroom
0: the entire time you were gone. Um. <laughs>
1: yeah, so I text Brennan. Uh, Patrick takes a pee break at 9.43. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> nice.
0: Okay. So I've forgotten. Do you remember it? Hang on. What the
2: fuck did you ask me?
0: <laughs> <laughs> it was a good question. I remember
2: that. Hang on. Did it take me a long time to basically have these organic conversations and get that, get that skill going? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Let me let me take a moment to put phrase that not to not find it funny that Patrick quit left for a bit. I don't even know why I find that so funny. It's, I got like, seltzer. it's not that amusing. What's that you drink, kid?
1: I think it has. There you go. Cola well, beverage, seltzer water, cranberry lime.
0: Ooh. I think it has with the fact that he doesn't like disappear off the side of the screen but you get to <laughs> you get to see him <laughs> <and> run away <laughs> yeah anyway
2: so what was the i question? mean i think well if I you listen it. to my answer you can work it out <laughs> no, like, the
1: question, I'll wait
2: the, till question the, uh, was, ears. the question <laughs> was the question was whether it came quite naturally for me to to have these organic conversations or whether it was something that i had to work on that's a good so, question yeah that yeah <laughs> <laughs> you you fucking off has derailed this so much i oh, hope that's... that you're gonna i hope you're gonna make a mark to to edit this out and then continue with me answering the question
1: yeah, probably. I'm <laughs> just right, checking a so, little. So,
2: shut <laughs> the fuck up. Answer
1: the answer to the question. Shut it up.
0: And we'll, and we'll get on with it. <clears throat>